Copy, Hog Zero One. Night Owl, Hog Zero One. Friendly's in sight, target in sight, in from the south. In from the south, you are cleared on, cleared on. Wolf Hog Element, good guns, good guns. Welcome to the Pathway to Wings podcast, a podcast for aspiring Air Force aviators hosted by current and former Air Force aviators. I'm your host for this episode, Major John Waters. I'm a former F-16 pilot and now an Air Force reservist working with the recruiting service. My guest today is Major Mason Flint Locke, an F-16 pilot and instructor out at Hallman Air Force Base. Flint and I have flown F-16s together and I'm excited to share his story of aviation and his path through the Air Force. Wherever you're listening, please hit like and subscribe. Leave us a rating and review over on iTunes. That'll help this podcast out. With that being said, let's get into the episode with Flint. Well, Flint, thanks for joining me on the podcast. Major Mason Flint Locke, F-16 instructor extraordinaire out at Holloman Air Force Base. Thank you for joining me on the podcast. Looking forward to Absolutely. chatting. Absolutely. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah. So, Flint, can you tell me a little bit about what you're doing now, how you got there, kind of the elevator pitch? All right. Elevator pitch. Uh, we'll call it a 10-story building. Grew up in small town Texas. Uh, went through Texas A&M for college. Did ROTC there. Joined the Air Force afterwards. Went through pilot training uh, at Shepard Air Force Base. Got selected for F-16s. Went through a Kelly Field in San Antonio, Texas. Did my first assignment in South Korea at Kunsan Air Base, then went to Shaw uh, in South Carolina, where that's where obviously we were stationed together. Deployed from there. Uh, next assignment was out here to Holloman, and I've been here for a while. Been here ever since, uh, instructing now in the F-16. Perfect. That concludes the podcast. Thanks for listening. Thanks for having me. <laughs> <laughs> no, a lot to encapsulate and talk about in your Air Force career, but I'd like to start at the beginning. What got you interested in aviation in the first place? All right. So that's a pretty easy one. Uh, my dad was a ag pilot, crop duster. Uh, so grew up with planes buzzing around the house all the time. Uh, not fighters or military aircraft by any stretch, but small yellow turbo props that, uh, man, I just loved watching planes fly around and fly low. And so that that's what got me into aviation. And then as I grew up, I guess, you know, we're talking kindergarten, grade school. That stayed with me, but I branched out more into kind of World War II aviation. I thought was really cool. And I still do. Big fan of the P-51. Yeah. Still the prettiest plane in the world to this day, in my opinion. I, I would agree with that. Um, so just continued that love of aviation. Once I hit high school, I was lucky enough that my dad was fully supportive of my aviation uh, passion and I got my pilot's license uh, just prior to graduating high school, I think. And so that's really what got me into it. Went flying a few times as a kid with my dad, but we didn't own a plane or anything. So it was mostly just watching him crop dust that really gave me the aviation bug. Did you know you wanted to go do ROTC in high school or did you kind of stumble upon that or was like, hey, I really liked aviation. So maybe I'll give this Air Force ROTC thing a try. What? Right. What happened? So uh, I initially 
didn't really have any aspirations to be in the military. My granddad was in the army uh, a long time ago, but we don't have like a strong, you know, lineage and definitely nothing air force with the military, but growing up there in uh farming town, Texas, East Bernard, uh, if anyone knows where that is, I did boy scouts, which does instill some patriotism, right? That's a big part of their, uh, kind of their core values is patriotism. And so I was like, Hey, this serving America thing would be cool. I love airplanes. I think I would love flying low and I would love flying fast. And so kind of, I'd say seventh or eighth grade is where I started to think about, Hey, I think I would like to join the military and maybe fly for them. Now, oh, very cool. And it's interesting that you didn't, I mean, for me, I guess not go into the ag flying business. Obviously you're surrounded by it, but just the initial hook. So there was no desire to go do crop dusting or. Oh man, there's still desire to go do crop <laughs> dusting. Fair enough. It is, it in my matter. opinion, it's the most stick and rudder uh, flying that you can do. And I really respect crop dusters and hope that someday maybe I can take that up after I retire or go part-time because that would be really cool to learn. Uh, absolutely. Uh, but initially just right out the gate, no, that was never really my intention uh, to go into ag aviation. Uh, I think because so early on, I'd kind of set my sights on going to Texas A&M University, which I did have a lineage there. So that's kind of what drew me uh, to the core. And from there, you know, it's a ROTC, very former all military school. And so that really kind of solidified that, hey, I want to go and fly for the military, uh, vice civilian aviation. So for me, I know going to college, I plan on doing ROTC. Did you plan on doing ROTC before you showed up at Texas A&M or was it just something I, you did once you were in the Corps of Cadets? All right. So yeah, it gets a little tricky there with the Corps because technically in the Corps, you don't have to go into the military anymore. Um, but I had planned on absolutely starting out in Air Force ROTC. And you actually have a couple years to make a decision if you want to pursue a commission or not. Uh, but for me, it was never a question. I knew, you know, about that junior high time that I was going to go into ROTC um, and try and become a pilot in the Air Force. What did you do in high school to set yourself up for success going into ROTC? Uh, so number one, I think was trying to get good grades, you know, not, not, uh, just scoffing the schoolwork and having all the fun, <laughs> which I still, I still had a lot of fun. Uh, but I would absolutely try and get good grades because when they select you later on for a pilot slot, they look at all that stuff. Like, how did you do in high school? Were you part of any community organizations? And for me, uh, I was involved in several different clubs in, in high school, but I would say the biggest one was Boy Scouts and getting the Eagle Scout uh, rank with that because there's so much that's such a broad brush of different life skills with all the different badges and whatnot uh, that that really sets you up for success in an ROTC style environment. Yeah. And I think for those applying or looking to go into the Air Force and who want to fly, you know, step one, the Air Force is looking for leaders, they're looking for officers you're a pilot after all of that. So being a well-rounded individual, it starts in high school, whether it be involved in extracurricular activities, being the team captain, being, you know, Boy Scouts, Girl Scouts, 
good grades, all that stuff stuff is integral in order to setting yourself up for success. I think to go into ROTC or go into the Air Force Academy. Yeah. So bottom line, you have to be, you know, a well-rounded individual. That's what the military is looking for. So you're in ROTC at Texas A&M. What was that? What was that like? What was a day in the life for Mason Locke there? Yeah. So I guess in the core of cadets, uh, it's going to be different than your most other ROTC units. It's kind of a blend between a regular school ROTC unit and one of the service academies because we wear slightly different uniform to class every day. You live in the barracks, you do uh, unit functions kind of like a uh, maybe an Air Force flight light, you know, you eat together, you march around. Uh, so you, you get a good uh, I don't know, a good hack at the military lifestyle in the Corps of Cadets there. As far as the ROTC, you had a lead lab every week, which is kind of a, I think of it as an outdoor uh, classroom where you're going to do something practical. And then every semester you had your uh, academic Air Force class where you learn everything from the history of the Air Force to leadership philosophy You've got guests come in and tell you about the different career paths that there are uh, for officers in the military. Um, So that's kind of how it works. And overall, I thought it did a great job uh, preparing me for an active duty Air Force career. And one thing we haven't talked about on the podcast is how do you get that pilot slot in ROTC? So what does that look like? What is the timeline when you're going to find out what goes into the process. I know you're slightly Absolutely. removed, but what, it, what, it, what does Flint have to say about this? I am slightly removed. That is true. But I can tell you one thing hasn't changed, and that is uh, getting good grades. Do you have to have a 4.0? No. Do you want to have failing grades on your, uh, on your record? Absolutely not. Because there's, at least when I went through, and I think it's still similar, even if there might have been tweaks, you basically are assigned an overall number, uh, a score based on all of the inputs. And a major part of that is going to be your grades up to that point. When you get your slot kind of depends on when you're going to graduate, you know, December, May, are you doing a three, four, five-year program, something like that. So that, that will vary. But when it's time for you to class and put in for a rated slot, They're going to crunch all those numbers and the grades are a big part of that. Other things that I know goes into it are commander's ranking. So if you're, uh, you know, if you spit on your commander's shoes day one, that's not going to (laughs) help. So having a good relationship with your leadership is uh, definitely going to help. And then there's uh, things like having some flying hours. Going for a rated slot, some flying hours absolutely help. And it's kind of a... uh, Again, we talked right before the podcast. Neither of us did math, but I think it's the logarithmic curve. So, you know, if you get if you get five hours, that's going to give you five points extra. If you get 10 hours, you might get seven points and then it kind of levels off. And I think about 100 hours beyond that, you're really not getting any more points. Uh, But that sort of thing goes into it. So not required by any stretch. But if you can get a little bit of flying experience. That will give you points and it will show your commander that, hey, I'm, you know, taking this aviation thing seriously. And then lastly, there is the AFOQT, which I'm sure they still have to take, and a hand-eye coordination test uh, to just kind of gauge if you can do that or not. I would say with modern day video games, 
99 out of 100 right. people applying to that are probably going to do fine. And all that that we just talked about goes into a number. And then your detachment will get so many pilot slots for that class. And they take the top number all the way down to however many uh, slots they have and give out pilot, navigator, and air battle manager slots based on that. And undoubtedly, it'll change next year or the year after that. But I think at the core, good grades, a good commander score, which is being a good leader, good officer potential is what they're looking at there, like your leadership ability, then AFOKT and flying hours, like that can't hurt. But you have to be, you have to do well in school and you have to be a good leader. I think that's what it comes down to. Absolutely. And uh, like I said, some of that stuff might have changed slightly. I think you summed it up nicely. Another thing that I will say is don't highlight yourself negatively. Stay out of trouble. Like getting a uh, citation or having a police record for something foolish, like, you know, drinking underage or getting pulled over for being intoxicated, like that is going to kill your ability to get that pilot slot. So uh, stay upstanding and out of trouble. Yeah. And really tough. Cause I don't know, maybe I was just lucky going through high school. I think I was a pretty good kid, but now like one little thing, it's a blemish on your record forever, you know? So absolutely. This is a long path and you have to be dedicated to it. Not saying it's a one mistake and you're done, but there are some, can, there are some one mistakes and you're done. So it, yeah, it can be overcome, but there, if there's no reason to highlight yourself negatively. So just uh, try and avoid that if you can, please. Just saying. So you get a pilot slot out of Texas A&M, ROTC, commissioning there. What was your transition like into active duty Air Force? So uh, this this change is kind of based on the timing and the needs of the Air Force when you come in. Um, based on everything goes in waves, personnel, uh, manning positions. And when I commissioned, the Air Force had opened the pipeline too much, if you will. And the base was full. The pilot training classes were full. They basically said, hey, congrats, you're a lieutenant. Uh, don't show up for six months. We'll see you then. Uh, so I went home and worked on the farm and continued to get buzzed by big yellow airplanes while I was driving a tractor out in the fields. <laughs> um, at the six-month point, when I got my active duty orders, moved up to Shepherd Air Force Base in Wichita Falls as a single guy. So living in the dorms there, if you're married, I do think you get to, uh, you can live in a house on or off base. But if you're single, you're going to be in the dorms, which is a double-edged sword. No one wants to live in a little apartment, but you really get to uh, know your neighbors and have a camaraderie there. Uh, so did almost two years at Shepherd because it showed up, didn't start pilot training immediately, initially went through IFS at the time it was called. I think now it's IFT. Yeah. They changed the names, uh, but it's learning the basics, you know, in, in a small GA plane, general aviation. Uh, went to ASBC when that was still a thing. And then about six months after showing up at Shepard, I started pilot training. How was pilot training for you? Anything that was challenging or difficult? Did you enjoy pilot training? Oh man, I had a blast. Like it is hard work. The learning curve is steep, but for someone who's passionate about aviation, you're just going to eat the entire course up, uh, all the way from academics to, uh, going to your follow on aircraft. Uh, I will say going into, especially in the, 
first flying aircraft, the T6, the turboprop. It's quite a bit slower than the jet trainers. I had gotten my instrument rating in college when I had uh, a little extra time. And so when we started learning instruments, I think I had a distinct advantage as well as other people who've, you know, done some instrument training where when you're flying, you know, not being able to see outside the aircraft and getting used to flying based on instruments, having some experience there definitely helped and lowered my stress level based on uh, as compared to some of my classmates, you know, who are learning that for the first time. So that was uh, something I would say was helpful. Obviously, again, not required by any means, but it did give us a little bit of an edge in the instruments. After that, though, formation, I'd say learning formation is the equalizer because really no one in the civilian world has learned military formation flying prior to pilot training. Um, so that's definitely a challenge, getting used to flying close to another aircraft, flying far away from another aircraft, tactical formation, you know, you're not actually close, but learning the timing, learning how to work as a team, just doing turns uh, was definitely a challenge. Uh, but overall, very rewarding. I think some points there too. So I was in the other bucket when we're talking instrument flying because I remember you're starting off pilot training and you're always doing academics for the next phase. So you're doing contacts, so basically doing aerobatics and doing academics for instruments. So I was trying to figure out the aerobatic piece and that's being very generalized in the T6, but I didn't know what an ILS was, instrument landing system. I didn't know anything about instruments and holding. So like my mind was exploding as I was going through it. So there's definitely an advantage of having some experience. And I know people ask like, Hey, do I have to have my pilot's pilot's license? Do I have to have my instrument rating in order to go? And the answer is no, but it's one of those things. I think airmanship, the more you fly, the more airmanship you will gain. That said, absolutely, you have to learn the air force way, right? I don't know. And that- by, the, by the end of it, was there any advantage uh, to be had? Like, was I a better instrument pilot than my, uh, friends that went in with no instrument time the day we pinned on our wings, probably not like the air force trains you up real well. Yeah. Uh, and will teach you all those things that you need to know if you didn't get to have those experiences, uh, flying general aviation. I think there's one of the things too, you know, so I was a first assignment instructor pilot and I had students who came through that had two or 3000 hours flying for the regional airlines that would graduate mm-hmm. at the top of their class. So obviously they had a lot of experience and knowledge and airmanship, but then, also, people would come through with two or 3,000 hours and really struggle because they Absolutely. had the mentality of like, well, that's not how we used to do it, or they just could not learn the Air Force way, and they graduated at the bottom of the class. And maybe they're just terrible people outside of that. I don't know. But nonetheless, <laughs> like the Air Force does a really good job. It's designed to take someone off the street who has no idea how to fly an airplane, and a year later, they're flying fast jets in close formation or tactical formation. Yep. So it's pretty cool. Moving on, you get an F-16 slot and you go to Kelly to train in F-16. So you're training with a guard unit to learn how to fly the F-16. Can you talk a little bit about that experience and what, why we do that, what the active duty component, training with a guard and how that works? Absolutely. So a few uh, years ago when I went through, there were only two spots to go through F-16 training, Luke Air Force Base and Kelly, which is more or less an annex at Lackland. Uh, Years before, F-16 training had moved around. I think Ohio had a guard base that did it. 
when it first came online. I want to say it was McDill back in the 80s, maybe. So it's moved around a few times. Since I've gone through, Luke and Kelly are still both putting out uh, new F-16 pilots every year. Obviously, we've opened up Holloman, which is where I'm stationed, and now the biggest base for training. We have three full-size squadrons uh, putting out multiple classes a year. Uh, and Tucson is also another guard base that has opened uh, or transitioned to becoming a training unit to produce new F-16 pilots because we have such a shortage. We now have four bases you know, running full-time, uh, putting out classes every year. So going through with the guard at Kelly, man, I am from Texas. It was literally two and a half hours from home. Talk about a good deal, man. Uh, it was great. Their jets are great. Um, they're getting old, but I tell you what, those maintainers, since it's a little bit different dynamic than the active duty, where they're not going to move around. So that crew chief has been with that jet for literally years. Uh, you can tell, you know, they they keep them clean. And to the best of their abilities, the Jets were born about the same time I was, 86, 87 time frame. Uh, they're keeping them running as best they can. And it was really a pleasure to go through there. Had a great instructor cadre. And on the weekends, I went home and went hunting. So it was awesome. Yeah, nailing it. And what's really cool, too, about the guard, I know there are probably some guys at Kelly who accepted those Jets as like a two-striper. And they crewed that aircraft, their entire Air Force crew, which is incredibly rare. But I think it's a really cool story. So, I mean, that jet is their baby and they know everything about it, which is really cool. Yeah. And like I said, the active duty, their maintainers there or here at Holloman, we have some contractors. Anyone who's working on that jet that I've ever worked with takes pride in it. And, you know, they're going to give their best work to give you a jet that is not only safe to fly and airworthy, but combat capable. Um I would just say it's the next level when that jet is your baby and you've been working on it for years and years. Oh, that's really cool. And now you're out there at Holloman. We were both assigned together in, in South Carolina flying F-16s. We deployed together. We did an interview on the Afterburn podcast about that, which people can uh, listen to. But I would like to talk about really what the B course is, what is a day in the life of B courser, and what are some of Flint's tips and advice for those looking to become pilots or looking to become F-16 pilots? So a day in the life of a B courser, it's basically UPT on steroids. I would say you are still starting out with a front heavy academic load. It's just this time the aircraft are, is much more complex and has way more systems to learn, uh, than the T6, the T1 or the T38. Uh, and I'm assuming it's probably still going to be more complex than the new aircraft coming online, the T7, just because it's a trainer. Uh, so there's a lot to learn academically with the F-16 going through the B course. So if you think that you get your wings and you're going to get to stop studying as much, unfortunately, that's not going to be the case. <laughs> uh, so front heavy academics load, then you start doing simulators. We've got several different iterations of simulators. The biggest one uh, four of them in a building, which you can link together and fly as a formation. They're really cool. It's like the best video game that money could buy. We're talking millions of dollars. Um, so you, you start training in the simulators and learn just how to start the aircraft, learn how to turn on the radar, you know, the very basics of the, uh, pilot interface with the aircraft. 
about that time, you're going to actually hit the flight line and start flying. So in the F-16, uh, we have D models and C models. C models are one seat, D models are two seat, which that's kind of a dying thing with the F-22 and the F-35 being our fifth gen, more frontline uh, fighters. They don't have two seaters, but in the F-16 we do. So taking advantage of that, your first few rides are going to have an instructor in the back seat. You're going to learn to take off and land, and once we think you're ready, you're going to go ahead and solo. Usually that's on your third flight, third or fourth flight in the program, so it happens early on. Once you have demonstrated that, hey, cool, I can take off and land, we can go to point A and point B, and we can do some formation, you're going to get a check ride, which for your Air Force career, unless you are a FAPE like you were, it's going to be your first Form 8. Uh, so it's kind of a big deal. You want to take it seriously and all of our students do, and usually they're very successful. So yeah, and, that, and I guess to highlight that form eight, that's the Air Force check ride, and that check ride is that form is going to follow you for the remainder of your career. So it is, it, yeah. it's, a, it's a big airlines deal. are going to look at it yep. someday and say, "Oh, you did good on your very first F sixteen check ride when you were still a lieutenant. Nice job." Uh, after that, it's all about learning to use the F-16 as a weapon, and it's a building block approach. And we, so we start from one-on-one air-to-air dogfighting offensive. Then one-on-one, you start off defensive. Then you start off neutral, and you just start to learn to fight within visual range, thinking uh, movies, you know, going to the merge and turning and shooting Fox 2s straight out of Top Gun. Not quite, but uh, <laughs> that's the idea. After that, we add another aircraft to make it more complex. Now you've got your instructor and you're fighting a different adversary. And so you're on the same team. After that, we move it beyond visual range. And so we're starting using the radar as a, uh, hey, we're shooting something 10, 20, 30, who knows how far away um, as a two ship, then as a four ship. So again, it's all building block approach. Oh, by the way, this whole time, while you're doing this, you're having academics and simulators, like you said, for the next phase. Uh, so there's a lot going on. Once you've done the air to air, we start to bring in the air to ground. So you again, start off with the basics of just simple bombing, dive bombing, almost World War II style, um, which is a lot of fun, by the way, shooting the gun. It's one thing about the F-16 that's great is we get to shoot the gun, not as much as the A-10, but quite a bit compared to uh, most of our newer fighters. So that's always a good day when you get to strafe. You then go into smart bombs, you know, thinking JDAM, the GPS INS guided weapons, laser guided bombs, start doing that as a single ship. Then again, add on following your flight lead, go to a four ship, and then we cap it all off with doing all that at the same time. You fight your way in against an air threat, maybe have to go to emerge and do a turning dogfight. Once you take care of that, you go and bomb the target and then you fight your way back out. And we're going to do it at night at some point as well. So it is a lot going on in a uh, quick course. It's down to just a little bit over six months. So it's a lot to learn very fast. Yeah. I equate, you know, like pilot training, everyone says pilot training is like drinking from a fire hose and it, it definitely is. But that year is basically just learning how to put your pants on to go to work, right? Because all that stuff ties into like, yeah. it's the takeoff, the landing, getting to and from the airspace that you basically spend a year doing flying a T6 and T38. 
and then just a little bit in F-16, and the rest is like, all right, how do I actually use this plane as a weapon? There's a lot of studying that goes into it. So it's interesting to see the progression. Any big tips you have for those, you know, guys and gals looking to become pilots, looking to go fly fighters, anything you see that works well or doesn't work? I would say, pardon, COVID. (laughs) Different times Uh, we're living in. Yeah. I would say uh, this will be agnostic of whether you can get flying hours, what college you go to, um, anything about that is just learn to time manage uh, and be diligent in your, in your goals. So if you decide you want to be a pilot, work towards that. Like don't, uh, don't just like research on the internet and say, oh, my vision's not perfect. I guess I can't be a pilot. Because uh, I think we talked about it right before we started this podcast. I had PRK eye surgery while I was in college uh, to get that 2020 vision that's required. Go see a military recruiter, officer recruiter, if that's the path that you're trying to go, and ask about uh, vision waivers. Because as we both know, there's a waiver for everything. So be diligent. And learn to time manage. And then once you get into a position where, hey, I'm in an RTC unit and I'm trying to get a pilot slot, I've got so much on my plate, learn time management. And hey, now uh, I got that pilot slot. The hard work paid off. I'm in pilot training. I've got so much going on. But that time management you learned in ROTC is now going to pay off. You study, you get your wings. And uh, if you want a fighter and you get a fighter, hey, now you're in the B course and you got to succeed. Uh, just like the flying aspect of the F-16B course, everything in your life leading up to that point is a building block. So just keep building off the experience you've had and getting better. Uh, and I think you'll find you'll be successful. Uh, I like that a lot. And one thing just kind of got my memory going here when you mentioned the PRK surgery. So we're, as we talked before, we started the podcast, well, things we didn't know. Like I thought I had to be an engineer to be a pilot. Turns Me out, too. Turns out you didn't have, that's not the case. And no, I think I rode I, horses in college. Yeah, I would have saved a lot of time and heartache had I really sought out a mentor to guide me through the process or help answer some of the questions that aren't like spelled out explicitly on the Air Force website, wherever it might be, just kind of help it. You got to do the legwork. You have to do legwork on your own and realize that your mentor has time limited. That's one thing that's out there. People have walked the path before you, especially in this arena. So find a mentor For and, sure. and ask questions. I think. Absolutely. It would have saved me a lot of heartache. Yeah, I, I think so as well. Hindsight, Flint. Hindsight. <laughs> so as we wrap up here, if you found 15, 16-year-old Flint walking down the street today, is there any advice you would give him? Uh, I would say stay out of trouble and work hard. And if you decide that you are going to you know, have this goal to be a military aviator, um, make that your focus. And because like I said, back in junior high, high school, once I decided that I did, it seems weird to think about now, but I, you know, it's 14, 15, 16 years old, making decisions, looking to the future saying like, man, I want to be a fighter pilot. Like, I don't want to blow up my knee again. So I'm going to do this, or I want to, I want to get good grades so I can get into the college I want. So I'm going to take this class that I know I enjoy and will be successful instead of calculus because like we said i i am not an engineer and that would have 
really hurt my uh, GPA had I thought that I had to be an aerospace engineer to be an Air Force pilot. To say, you just got to know the requirements, right? That, that's right. <laughs> well, Major Mason Flintlock, thank you for joining me on the podcast. It was great having you on here. And I know people are really going to enjoy hearing about your experience. Cool. I uh, appreciate you having me. Hope it was fun. Absolutely. Look forward to the next one.